This winter, join the Washington Post in its fight against hunger, homelessness, and poverty with a contribution to Post Helping Hand. To learn more and donate, visit posthelpinghand.com. From the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with the Washington Post. Hey, it's Darcy. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, January 3rd. Today, a serious escalation in tensions between the U.S. and Iran. Plus, the lasting image of an astronaut's view of home. So we got word Thursday night that there was an airstrike at the Baghdad International Airport, which is Iraq's main airport. There was an American drone that launched an attack on a convoy of vehicles that was carrying Qasem Soleimani, who is the commander of Iran's Quds Force. Missy Ryan covers the Pentagon for The Post. Soleimani was closely associated with a network of armed proxy groups in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon. And he really was this incomparable security figure for Iran. And his death is just a massive earthquake for the region and for America's relationship with the Middle East. So right now, it's noon on Friday. So far, how has Iran responded to this drone strike? So Iran has vowed to enact severe revenge against the United States for um, what it has deemed an act of international terrorism. What we are bracing for right now is the potential response via Iran's network of armed proxy groups throughout the Middle East in places like Syria and places like Lebanon and elsewhere, and also the potential for them to employ more conventional military means. For example, in the waters off of Iran, they have the ability to um, affect international shipping. They could shut down the Strait of Hormuz. We could see attacks on American vessels. You could see um, them employing their significant arsenal of missiles, which you know can reach many places. Well, so then the revenge that they're talking about is the expectation that that whatever form that would or could take, that that would be localized to the Middle East, or could it be something on American well, I, soil? <laughs> we don't know. I mean, the the most likely scenario is that their retaliation, whatever it may be, would unfold in the region because that's where they have their networks, that's where they have their their military assets. You know, you can hypothesize about scenarios where they try to strike more directly at the United States, but I think the place we're going to look first is within the Middle East. And Secretary Pompeo has also said in the last day that that there had been threats of some sort that Soleimani was partaking in, that he was planning some type of attack on U.S. diplomats. The American people should know that President Trump's decision to remove Qasem Soleimani from the battlefield saved American lives. There's no doubt about that. Uh, He was actively plotting in the region to take actions, a big action as he described it, that would have put dozens, if not hundreds, of American lives at risk. Uh, We know it was imminent. This was an intelligence-based assessment uh, that drove our decision-making process. What do we know about what those threats were, or is there actually hard evidence that they did exist? Well, a number of different government officials have, have said that Soleimani was plotting attacks against Americans. And 
you know, that wouldn't, that in and of itself is not very surprising. You know, there have been, as we've said, a series of different um, different attacks over the years. But Pompeo made it seem in his remarks that it was something more imminent, potentially more significant. We don't yet know what that was. And, and I think that that's one of the key questions that members of Congress are, are asking right now. They're going to be briefed later today is, you know, what, what was the justification for, for this? Was this really to preempt an imminent attack or is, was this something that was more about uh, the Iranian government's MO over, um, over many years in which they, you know, had this antagonistic approach to the United States? The, if it was the latter, I think that's going to present the administration a much bigger problem with Congress. So what we've seen from our reporting is that the idea of killing Soleimani, that that was something that, that previous administrations had also considered because he has in many ways been considered an enemy of the U.S. But why do you think it is that the Trump administration decided to go ahead and take that step when previous administrations thought it was too risky? I think that's the million-dollar question, and that's what everybody's trying to figure out right now. The Trump administration condemns such actions by Iran that undermine security. I mean, one of the first things that occurred after President Trump took office was his then national security advisor taking the podium in the White House briefing room and putting Iran on notice. ...the various agreements reached between Iran and the Obama administration, as well as the United Nations, as being weak and ineffective. Instead of being thankful to the United States in these agreements, Iran is now feeling emboldened. As of today, we are officially putting Iran on notice. Thank you. And since then, we've seen a steady escalation of tensions between the United States and Iran, and that has taken you know, many different forms. But one of the big events was the decision to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. Subsequently, the United States has imposed new sanctions on Iran, which have had a huge impact on the Iranian economy and the Iranian people. There have been several attacks um, by the um, attributed to Iran by the United States, including a big attack on um, Saudi uh, oil facilities, which was seen as, you know, a strike against both the, both a key Gulf ally and also the United States and, and the international oil economy. And then last June, there was a very dramatic moment after um, Tehran's decision to shoot down an American surveillance drone and President Trump authorized and then canceled at the very 11th hour a series of airstrikes into Iran. And, and at that time, that seemed like, you know, there was this push and pull within um, the White House and potentially within President Trump himself between wanting to respond and show that the United States was not going to stand by while Tehran did what they viewed as as these um, antagonistic and provocative moves, but also not wanting to spark this larger war. And so when President Trump called off those strikes at the last minute, I think it really reaffirmed this idea that we had about his desire to redirect towards, you know, other threats that the United States faces in the world, including China, and also uh, just make sure that, that you know, everybody isn't consumed by this never-ending, messy, hugely costly war in the Middle East. And did President Trump alert Congress that this drone strike was going to be taking place? And now, can Congress do anything to kind of put the brakes on this escalation of conflict? So President Trump has the authority to act to prevent you know, imminent attacks on the United States at any moment. 
But I, uh, members of Congress are already raising this question of whether this truly was a question of sort of imminent and direct self-defense. And as we've seen in recent days and weeks, he and his terrorists posed an ongoing and growing threat to American lives and American interests. Or whether this was something which they have not authorized, which is, you know, a conflict with Iran. No one should shed a tear over his death. The operation against Soleimani in Iraq was conducted, however, without specific authorization and any advance notification or consultation with Congress. I'm a member of the Gang of Eight, which is typically briefed in advance of operations of this level of significance. We were not. And so they are going to be asking for evidence, for intelligence about, and, and making evaluations about the seriousness and the severity of the, of the threat that Pompeo was referring to there. So what has been the response from the international community so far? I think that in the West, there is a strong consensus that Qasem Soleimani and the military activities that he represented were problematic and destabilizing for the region. But there is equal, if not greater, concern at this moment about the potential impact of this action, which is seen as a huge escalation in U.S.-Iran tensions that could affect not just the United States, but its allies across the region and across the world. You said that President Trump has this reputation for not really being a, a war hawk at heart, that he fundamentally is kind of averse to these big, messy conflicts. But this this drone strike and, and the killing of Soleimani, do you think that changes our understanding of President Trump or changes our expectation on whether this conflict could actually lead to a real war? I think that that's one of the reasons why this is such a confounding event in many ways, is that it really does defy everything we know about how President Trump views America's role in the world and especially in the Middle East. He, since he was a candidate, he has said that the U.S. military should not be there, that, you know, let other people fight these wars. We should be at home worrying about our own problems. And in the past, even though, you know, he had, uh, you know, embraced all this uh, bellicose rhetoric um, against Iran and other American adversaries, he was pretty cautious when it came to authorizing military action. It's true that he did authorize several strikes against the Syrian government in a way that previous administrations did not. But those military actions were very contained. They were very surgical um, and with pretty predictable results. Um, And this is a whole different ballgame. And it really makes you question what was the thinking there and what was rationale. And, and, you know, we just don't know yet. It also, for me, as someone who covers the Pentagon, is um, doubly uh, perplexing because for for more than a year, for several years, the, the Pentagon has been trying to put the brakes on what many officials there saw as a march towards war from some other members of, of the Trump administration. And so... If it was the case that the military proposed this as one of the potential actions, it it really is surprising to me. And I think that that's one of the questions that we're trying to report out over the next few days. Since the news broke about 
the killing of Soleimani and, and since people have been seeing these threats from Iran about some real form of retaliation, people have been talking about this like it could be the start of World War III. Do you think that is hyperbolic or is is there a real chance that this is going to escalate in a devastating way? Well, I, I think we want to be tempered in how we characterize um, the the potential implications of this, but also realistic in that because this was such an important figure in Iran and because of the public nature of the way it was conducted, it really does force Iran to respond in some way. And we just don't know what that response will be and what sort of chain of events that will set off. And certainly there is a lot, there are a lot of reasons to think that it could be very dangerous in terms of setting off either these, a new gray zone conflict in terms of, you know, these vulnerable American um, facilities and personnel throughout the Middle East. But also really injecting different kind of energy into the debate over Iran's nuclear program, what they choose to do in terms of um, potentially resuming uh, different kinds of activity in their nuclear program and what the American response will be. So when you have two countries that are taking these, um, what they see as defensive steps, um, you, you, you see a situation where it could easily get out of control. Missy Ryan covers the Pentagon and national security for The Post. On Friday afternoon, President Trump was in Mar-a-Lago, and he addressed the attack on Soleimani. We took action last night to stop a war. We did not take action to start a war. I have deep respect for the Iranian people. They are a remarkable people with an incredible heritage and unlimited potential. We do not seek regime change. However, the Iranian regime's aggression in the region, including the use of proxy fighters to destabilize its neighbors, must end and it must end now. And now, one more thing. The image of Neil Armstrong walking on the moon is probably the most famous photo from the Apollo mission. But art critic Sebastian Smee says that, for him, the most powerful picture was taken the year before, on the Apollo 8 mission. Not a photo of the moon, but a photo of Earth. It shows this beautiful blue planet, the Earth, just above the horizon of the moon. That photograph became known as Earthrise. It was taken on Christmas Eve, 1968. It's just a, a, an entrancing image because it shows the Earth as the only sort of spot, if you like, of colour in what is otherwise a, a black or grayscale world. And you see the blue, obviously, as well as the white of the clouds and some green. And I think it's an image of incredible vulnerability and, and, and delicacy. Earth coming up. Wow, is that pretty? 
And it was just incredibly moving to the astronauts who saw it. They were surprised to see it out the window of Apollo 8. Get a color film, Jim? Hand me a roll of color quick. Oh, man, that's crazy. Where is it? Quick. The image was taken by the astronaut William Anders on board Apollo 8. And it's really poignant in a way because, you know, I, I think everyone obviously was incredibly excited about the whole space race and about the whole goal of getting closer and closer to the moon. And you can understand why it's an extraordinary achievement. But having seen the Earth from a distance, they realized that they'd come all this way only to realize that what really mattered in a sense was the Earth. I think we were all uh, you know, taken aback because there had been no planning discussion of seeing the Earth. Uh, we were trained uh, to a degree to explore the moon, to comment on the topography and geology, if you will, of the moon. And when I saw the Earth rise and then also pictures of the small Earth from a lunar distance, it crossed my mind that, you know, here we'd spent all this time studying the moon and what we were doing was discovering the Earth. So Frank Borman, the commander of the mission, uh, had this beautiful quote where he said, it was the most beautiful, heart-catching side of my life. He said, uh, it was one that sent a torrent of nostalgia, of sheer homesickness surging through me. It was the only thing in space that had any colour to it. Everything else was either black or white, but not the Earth. You just feel this, this incredibly amazing thing of these astronauts having left Earth and being so close to their heart's desire. They'd been trying to get to the moon for so many years, but they had this flood of nostalgia and homesickness. I, I just think that that is a really such a turning point, almost in human history, the idea that you could get that perspective on your own home. This, this strange planet that we're on and get a sense of how rare and how precious it is. Sebastian Smee is an art critic for The Post. The story originally ran on Post Reports in July to mark the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. If you want to learn the real story behind the decision to go to the moon, check out the Washington Post podcast, Moonrise. It's a 12-part series about the history of the moon landing, told by Lillian Cunningham. Find it at wapo.st slash moonrise or on your podcast app. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rina Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Renny Swarnovsky, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Contributions to Post Helping Hand go directly to services run by beneficiaries Bright Beginnings and Street Village and so others might eat that provide shelter, food, education, and other services to those less fortunate in the Washington, D.C. region. 
Learn more at posthelpinghand.com.